Welcome, welcome, welcome. Got your Bibles this morning or your devices? We are in the book of Ezra starting in chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, we are three weeks into a series called Restoration, looking at how does God go about rebuilding a people? What does that mean? What does that mean for us today? You guys here? Yeah. All right. Too busy drinking your coffee. Restored. Restored. All right. Real quick, last week we took a look at uh, Ezra chapter 3, rebuilding the altar and the, and the laying of the foundation and what that means. Why does God call us? Why did he call his people? Why does he call us to lay, to build the altar before we build the house, before we build the walls? What does that mean? Of course, it means that the worship is central. The worship is, is at the core of our identity as God's people. And before anything else, before we raise up walls of protection or before we dig wells of provision, we have erected an altar of worship because that's who we are. We talked about how that's important in families and that's important in, uh, in, in, even in our church. So we're looking at now moving forward. This is part three, resistance. We're going to be in chapter four, five, and six. Two, keep, two, two things to keep in mind as we're moving forward. The first one is this. There was constant resistance. Now that the work has started, there's constant resistance to this work from this chapter on until the very end of the story. All the way through the rest of Ezra into the book of Nehemiah, and these were originally written as one book, from chapter four on, there is constant opposition and constant difficulty. And that's an important thing to stop and think about right? Because any of the work that God calls us to do, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be opposition. So that's the first thing. The second thing to keep in mind is that in spite of that resistance and opposition, the hand of God was supernaturally on the people. And that's, that's encouraging for me, and I want to give you an example of that here today. So we're going to jump in. We're going to begin reading in, in, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This will be on the screen behind us. If you don't have an app, we're in the, where the translation that we're using is the NIV, New International Version. Of course, you have your own translation, but this is the one we're, we're using for this series here. Uh, chapter 4, beginning in, verse, um, beginning in verse 1, it says this. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel into the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord. The God of Israel is King Cyrus, the king of Persia commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They bribed officials to work against them and to frustrate their plans. That's the same thing, isn't it? We have two verses, two verse fives. So let's stop right there. So um, I've got kids, and if you have kids, you'll, you'll notice sometimes kids do this. You know, they'll be playing on their own, but once in a while, one of your children, one of mine, will find something new to do, a new toy to play with, right? 
um, they'll discover something in mom or dad's closet or they'll find a toy that they had forgotten about and like they'll just set their mind to doing this. And the next thing, at least in our family, inevitably kind of once, you know, once this one kid finds something, the other, in this case, one or two who are of that age will kind of get wind of this. Like, oh, Cohen's got something fun to play with. And they'll like circle around and, you know, want to join in. You know, it's kind of what this reminds me of. Uh, I want to point out a couple of things here in the story. First of all, it calls them the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. These are people, so uh, by the way, our, 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 um, our heroes of the story, the people of Israel, they have, are, have been recently brought back from Babylon. When they arrive, they find that the area is not empty. It's not devoid of people. It's occupied by people. And this, this particular group, the people occupying the land uh, when the Jews arrive, 2 Kings 17 tells us that sort of several hundred years ago when the Assyrian king came in and conquered and he dispersed, he took all of the Jews out of the land, but he also took some Assyrian people and brought them into the land to replace them. So kind of did the old flipperoo, you know, mix them all up. He pushes the Jews out and he brings new people in. And these new people then settle in this land of Canaan and they begin to make it their home. And, um, and, and, and they begin to resettle Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. So these now, these people have sort of intermarried with the remnant of Jews who escaped exile and have sort of now formed families and several generations have now passed. And all of a sudden, God's remnant, God's remnant is brought out of exile, and now they're, they're facing this, and they're realizing, hey, we're not alone. There are others here, and these others are part Jew and sort of part Assyrian. And sort of, it's this mix, and it's this same mix sort of has passed down all the way into Jesus' day. If you kind of read the stories in the New Testament, well, you'll see, you know, the stories about the Samaritans and how the Jews hate the Samaritans because of this very thing right here. Samaritans were half Jewish and sort of half pagan and other and Canaanite or whatever else. They really were not viewed as being legitimate heirs of God's promises. So here in, in verse 1, it says they call them the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. So these Samaritans then hear about all the work that's happening. They hear the report that, you know, the temple is going to be rebuilt again. The altar is being raised up and they are excited. They come in and they say, we hear all the things that you're doing. They say, we want to help, but we want to get in on this. We've been sacrificing. Look at what it says. It says, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. So they make this really interesting statement as if it gives them some credibility. But what they don't realize is that it doesn't give them any credibility because they're not supposed to be sacrificing because there is no priesthood there. There is no temple there. But these Samaritans have taken it upon themselves to sort of do, you know, a little bit of the law here. And so let's take the best of things and we'll kind of, we'll kind of do our own version of this, you know, Yahweh worship. And they're proud of that. And they come and they say, we've been worshiping too. And, and all of a sudden, you know, God, Zerubbabel and the others are like, whoa, no, 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 no. They say, you have no part with us in building the temple to our God. So Zerubbabel says no, even though on one hand, it may be helpful to have more hands on deck right? He may have thought for a minute, wow, this is great. You know, we can bring in more people. It's going to take us long. You know, we can really get this thing raised up. But then the Spirit of God prompts him and says, no, you have no part of this. This is the work for us to do. And the answer is no. And then watch what happens. And this really does reveal their character of the Samaritans. 
The people around them then set up to discourage the people of Judah, to make them afraid to go on, literally to trouble them as they're, as they're building. And it says that this, this sort of opposition continues then all through the reign of Cyrus, all the way into the reign of Darius, years and years and years later. And then verse 6, there's another example of opposition. We're not going to read all of it, but it begins this way. It says, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Benjamin. And then uh, sort of the rest of all of, um, the rest of chapter 4 from, from verse 6 all the way down is sort of these, is, is another example of, of, of sending these letters and accusing God's people of, of, of all kinds of things. And a letter is sent back to Babylon accusing the Jews and, and, and these uh, these accusers are recommending to the, to, the, to the king of Persia, they're saying, you, it's really in national interest that you stop this work. And the king agrees, and in verse 18 says this, the letter that you sent to us has been read and translated in my presence. Verse 19, I issued an order, this is the king of, king of Persia, I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings. And it's been a place of rebellion and sedition. This is what he's saying about, against the Jewish people, against Jerusalem. It has a long history of revolt against kings, and it's been a place of rebellion and sedition. Verse 20, Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tributes, and duties were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop the work, so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Verse 23, as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Verse 24, thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, some 15 years later. So all of the energy... In all the excitement of chapter 3, the celebration, the loud noise, this, this anticipation of what God is doing, it's like they're out of the gate with so much force and the world is wide open before them. Within just a few short seasons, the work grinds to a halt and the king comes in and says, no. And this is a different king. This is not the same one who had given the order and the Jews then are compelled by force to stop. And they now sort of leave their project alone. Put the shovels away. Put the pickaxes away. Put all the tools for rebuilding away. They go about their business and they settle in. And many of them sort of give up on the dream because of this opposition. And it would have continued this way were it not for the prophets. This is why we love the prophets. The prophets are the ones who sort of have this ear close to the heart of God because God doesn't forget his promises. God's going to do something. He's going to speak to them. We talked to this last week about this, about how God used the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to sort of bring the people and, and encourage the people and motivate the people to get up and going again. And that's what happens here in chapter 5. The rebuilding resumes because of encouragement from the prophets. Verse 1 says, now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet. He mentions them both by name. And if you, were to, if, you, if you were to read the book of Haggai and read the book of Zechariah, they are at the, they're contemporaneous, they're there, but they have two different things that God has called them to speak into. 
Haggai is called to really speak to the physical rebuilding. And then Zechariah is really called to speak into the spiritual rebuilding. Both are important. Erect the altar and the temple, says Haggai, and build up a a, a character of holiness, says Zechariah. I think that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly what God wants to communicate, almost like they're in stereo, you know, one on this side and one on the both speaking the voice of God, you know. And I think about it this way, and there's a lot of talk about what's the role of the temple. And the easiest way to explain it is, is this thing on my finger right here. You can't see it, but it's, it's white gold, and it's made of, uh, I told you, made of, made of, made of white gold, and it, it's in a circle, and it fits around this finger, and has some writing on there. It says, she is mine, I am hers. It's a piece of jewelry that this lovely lady right here gave to me 19 years ago, 18 years ago. And I gave her one like that as well. Exactly, I have to do the math in my head. So this is a wedding ring, obviously. And it represents my marriage to Megan. This doesn't make me married. It represents my marriage to Megan. It's a symbol of a reality. Now, you could say, what is more important, the symbol or the reality? Well, obviously, the reality is more important, right? If something were happened and I was held up at gunpoint and somebody stole my jewelry and stole my ring or, you know, God forbid, something happened to my fingers and I couldn't wear a ring on my finger, that would not alter the reality of my marriage to Megan. Yet, the symbol is important as well. If she were to wake up and, you know, go into the bathroom the next morning and see my ring laying there, you know, she'd come and bring it to me and I'd put it back on. If, she, if that were to happen the next day, she'd say, why are you taking your ring off? Put this thing back on, you know, or, or if she were to see me like, you know, pull it off, you know, every time we go into public and put it in my pocket, you know, if she were to see me like just doing things and disrespecting the symbol, that would clue her in that something is wrong with my value of the reality. And the same is true here. The temple is the ring. It's a symbol of their covenant relationship with God. It's how they show him their faithfulness, come into the temple, honor the law, follow the law, offer sacrifices. It doesn't, that doesn't justify them before the Lord, but it's their way of walking in relationship with him. And the prophets are saying both things are important. You need to be faithful in your heart, but you need to honor the symbol that God has put in place as well. And the people sort of are having to learn this. You know, they wanted to abandon. Early years and years ago, they thought that it was all about the symbol. As long as we go through the motions of temple worship, God's going to, you know, he's going to take care of us. And all of a sudden, God says, oh, no, it's not. Watch what happens when the temple is destroyed. And all of a sudden, the temple is destroyed. And now they're questioning, why do we even need a temple in the first place? Because the symbol has value as well. And these two are speaking into it. So now Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Verse 2, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. God always raises up prophetic voices during seasons of opposition. He does. 
No sooner had this, so they resume building, and of course, no sooner had the rebuilding resumed, opposition begins again. Another letter is sent. This is a different group of people, but they say, no, 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 Jews, you're not going to do this. You're not going to build this back up. And they send another letter, this time to yet another king. This time it lands in the hands of Darius. And the people, and, the, and these opposi- in opposition, they write and they say, King Darius, these people are claiming something. They're claiming to have permission from Cyrus years ago to do this rebuilding work. Can you verify this? Like they, you know, when you get pulled over by the police and they want your registration, they got to go back and radio it in. They want to verify that, you know, you're actually, this is your car. And they send a letter saying, can you verify that this is true? And we're about, this is really cool, guys. We're about to see miracles. God is going to turn resistance into abundance. All right? He's about to turn opposition into opportunity because it says this in verse, chapter 6, verse 1. King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury of Babylon. You guys say treasury at Babylon. So he says, go and look in the treasury at Babylon. See if this order is there. See if this letter from Cyrus really is in existence in the records. If the Jews claim it, we'll find it there. Verse 2, a scroll was found in the citadel of Ecbatana. Y'all say citadel of Ecbatana. All right, I'm not a geography guy, but Babylon and Ecbatana are not the same place. In fact, they're pretty far apart. As the crow flies in a straight line, it's about 265 miles apart. And I don't, want to, I don't want to miss this because everything that's written in the Bible is written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if the Bible tells us they looked here and found something here, I need to pay attention to that. Tell me that God's not at work in that. Tell me that God's Spirit is not supernaturally moving and saying, you know, oh, by the way, the enemy tried to take that and hide it 265 miles away. Spirit of God is going to direct whoever's looking for this all the way to this other citadel, and they're going to find the record in question. I think that's a miracle in itself. 265 miles, so that the enemy had taken proof of God's favor and hidden it 256 miles away, 265 miles away, yet here it is in the hands of the king. He thought he had hidden it. He thought he had taken it away. All of a sudden, the king Darius has it in his hands. And he reads it. And he makes this fateful decision. Verse 6. Now then, he says this. Now then, Tatanai, governor of trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozanai, and you other officials of the province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree that you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of the house of God. Their expenses, this gets better. I love this. Their expenses, not only are you to give them permission to stay out of their way, by the way, you're going to foot the bill for this. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates. So basically, all the profit that you're making, guys, you who sent this letter, get your checkbooks out. So that the work will not stop. Verse 9, whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, olive oil, whatever they want, give it to them daily without fail. 
so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. And not just permission, but lavish favor. This is what God does. This is what God can do in, in the face of opposition. This is how God does things. The very, and sort of like these, these enemies of God's people who, who seem to have, you know, those of you that play check, uh, chess, right? You know, you know, like if you're playing chess, you can put your opponent in check. And check is like one step away from losing the game. You know, like check is a bad thing. It's not quite checkmate, but you're in a bad position. You're, you know, when I play, it's like I may as well be dead. You know, I can't figure my way out of it. The enemies of God's people have the Jews in check. They're about to go under. They've done this for 15 years now. They have halted the work. They have ground to a halt. They have stymied the people. And now they've got one last play. The enemies of God's people are turned on their heels and all of a sudden their opposition becomes opportunity. And it becomes blessing in the hands of God. I like that. I don't know about you guys. I get excited thinking about what God can do. How God can take something that is so seemingly difficult and transform it into this amazing blessing. And it's like the worse it gets from God's perspective, the better it's going to be on this side, right? It's like God saying, okay, how, how long can I let this go on before I got to play my hand, you know? So the work continues, verse 14, so the elders of the Jews continue to build and prosper. They continue to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah. So these two things happening, they've got this physical labor that's happening. They're actually rebuilding the temple, but they're also having some spiritual development. As these two prophets are ministering to them and preaching to them, their character is being restored as well. They finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia, period. They did it. In spite of all opposition, they lay the final stone. And the chapter ends with the dedication of the temple, celebration of Passover, the first time that this has happened in 100 years. It hasn't happened since the reign of King Josiah. They've forgotten Passover. Who, who remembers what that is? We haven't done that in so long. But the temple is here. Let's do it. Let's honor God. Let's follow the law. So here's some takeaways for this. First one is this. Opposition is part of the plan. It's part of God's plan. Think of, think of it as his refining process. God is not caught off guard by opposition to whatever he's called you to do in your life or your family or church, or whatever else. God's not caught off guard by this. Actually, on the contrary, he is allowing it to happen because this is all part of his plan. This is what gives him the most glory. He likes to stack the deck against himself. You know, like one of my favorite stories, we're talking about Elisha and Elijah at prayer earlier before the service started. You know, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I'm watching my time here. Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You know that story? He calls down fire from heaven. I love Elijah because he wants to make it so difficult for God. He wants there to be no doubt whatsoever that God's about to do something big, right? So he doesn't just have an altar. 
The other guys have an altar. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't just sort of have his thing on there. He says, all right, guys, by the way, God's going to send fire down from heaven and consume. Whoever's God is real is going to consume fire down on this altar. So they built theirs, the prophets of Baal, and then God, you know, Elijah built his. And he says, oh, by the way, just to make sure that you know that this is God and not me, I want to soak this with water. Because water, you know, makes the things don't burn if they're wet. So guys, come on, let's put a pitcher of water on this sacrifice in all the wood. And it's okay, it's pour, pour water on this and it kind of soaks the, you know, the sacrifice and gets the wood. And Elijah says, no, 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 we need lots more water. We want this thing to be like dripping wet. In fact, dig a trench around it so we can put more water on this. He does it and God's fire falls and consumes it all, water and all. Like, it's like God wants to stack the deck. He wants to make it so hard that there's no doubt in his mind that he is Lord, that he's sovereign. So opposition is part of the plan. Here's the second takeaway. Opposition can, if we allow it to, refine our character and our calling. It can refine us. It can force us to evaluate Lord, what about me needs to be refined by you? I'm, I'm getting pushback. And Meg and I, we've been through this. We've been through opposition in, in some life circumstances. We've been in opposition in some leadership circumstances. And we kind of, you know, we take those opportunities to say, Lord, we can be angry about this. Or we can say, Lord, teach us. Teach me. Refine me through this. And it forces me to say, am I really called to this work because it's hard and if I'm not called to this work I don't want to do it and honestly there have been some situations where the opposition has come and we realize this is not our fight this is not what we're called to do and other times where we meet opposition we realize this is hard work but this is what God's called us to do and it refines our character and refines our calling I think the third takeaway is the opposition can betray the enemy's tactics one way that we know that we're doing the right thing is by the measure of pushback we get by the enemy. Because there's not... If, if, if the Jews would have laid their shovels down, walked away, wide open arms to the Samaritans, whoever else, let's all be one big happy family, the enemy would have smiled and said, let's let them grow fat and happy and live in peace all the days of their lives. But the opposition can betray the enemy's tactics. If we begin to push up against something and we know in our heart, okay, God has called me to do this. This is not an issue of being God's will. I know it's God's will, but I'm still getting feedback. It really can betray, okay, this is a door that needs to come down because I'm getting opposition about it. And finally, opposition with perseverance can release God's favor. And I want to see God's favor released on you and your families, on my family, on your businesses, on your things God's called you to do on this church. I want to see God's favor released on this church. And part of this means that the opposition gives God a chance sort of to respond in favor. And the things, you know, the darker that things seem to get are only a mirror of the glory that's to come, right? And it's like sort of the, the more that we get pushed down, 
the greater the power of God's going to be when he shows back up. Brian, come on up. And there are things that I wish were a lot easier. I, I wish seasons of life were not quite as rife with resistance. But we keep in mind, you know, just like Meg said, just like she said to these children, that we are loved. That's our identity. We're loved by God. It doesn't matter what resistance we face. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't mean the letters they write. We're loved by God. We're safe. We're safe in his will. We're safe in his plan. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can snatch us. Nothing can get us off track. The enemy can do what he wants all day long. God is a mover of hearts. God is on his throne. God makes nations rise and nations fall. We're children of, children of the king. All right, let's stand together. And we're, I'm going to pray over us and we're going to we're going to worship here, and I'll give some instructions after this first song. Father, we love you today. We love you this morning. Lord, we love that you're faithful to your promise, even when we get discouraged because of pushback, when we get tired because of difficulty. You're true to your word. You're true to your plan. Lord, we'd rather fix our eyes on you who called us. Greater are you in us than the one that's in the world. As Elisha said, those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And we have the favor of heaven. We have the armies of heaven at our disposal. So, Lord, we choose now not to be discouraged, troubled, afraid to go on. We'll take you at your word. Whatever that means, Lord, however that applies to us, whatever situation that is applying to, we're going to take you at your word. What you're calling us to move into what you're calling us to raise up. What you're calling us to release into the world. We say yes to you.